three, two, one. Oh my God, I am live with podcasting legend, jet set bartender, brandy educator, bar owner and author, uh, Damon Bolte. Damon, how's things, mate? Hey, doing pretty well. How about you? Good. It is morning where you are out there on the uh, on the left coast. So in your honor, I have uh, a very delicious espresso. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, I also have a very delicious large glass of whiskey. So cheers. <laughs> cheers indeed. I have a coffee mug full of rosé. <laughs> Excellent. It's the wine mug. I was actually searching through my um, liquor cabinet, which has like seven aquavits in it to see if I had any Fernet to make a hard start with. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I didn't plan ahead and I drank every drop of every Fernet I had during <laughs> the, the 2020 lockdown. So, because I, I always sure. associate you very strongly with it. But I was kind of do. I did do a little bit of research and uh, you only really work for Fernabranca for like a couple of months, but it certainly it made the biggest imprint on me. Yeah, it was it was a few months, um, kind of right before the pandemic. I I was with Brooklyn Gin as their global brand ambassador for about seven years, I believe. And um, I, you know, it was funny because I was actually sitting with Tim Masters from Chartreuse. Uh, we were he was actually out in San Francisco. We met up for lunch um, at a really amazing place that's no longer around called Leo's. That was like an oyster bar. It was actually like. The larger uh, version of like ZZ's clam bar, if you've ever been there. You, you, you couldn't you couldn't really have a smaller version of ZZ. ZZ's yeah. is like <laughs> about the size of my dining room, and what a joy right. it was back in the day. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, we met up there, and he was like, you know, he's like, you've like created several gins. You work for a gin company. He's like, but you have the Fernet Branca tattoo in your chest, and like everyone knows you as the Fernet guy. Why haven't you worked with Fernet? Branca. And I was like, well, you know, they've tried to get me to work with them about four times over 10 years. And every time, you know, how life goes and how work goes, there was always something new coming up or, you know, I was opening a bar or I was getting kind of promoted with Brooklyn Gin. The timing never really worked out. And truth be told, there was uh, someone who worked with their previous company, Infinium, that I just didn't really like and get along with. So (laughs) I'm going to name names. Uh, But then I found out that he was moved around the company to where I wouldn't actually have to work with them. That was the last time they asked me to come on. And then finally, uh, you know, Tim was like, why don't you work with Fernet Branca? And I was like, well, you know, uh, I, I sure would like to. And he was like, you know, they just split off from Infinium and now they're Branca USA. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And he was like, you need to fucking talk to Fernet Branca. And he's like, do you know anyone? Do you need me to help you like, like get in contact with him? I'm like, well, I know Eduardo Branca. And he was like, Go outside right now and get on the phone with them. So I, I hit up Edward Bronk and he was like, uh, hell yeah, we want to work with you. And they kind of created a position for me. They were going to have me become the national brand ambassador for Fernet Branca. Uh, in the meantime, I was working in Southern California uh, while living in Northern California as their uh, senior portfolio manager, just to kind of like fill some holes that needed uh, attending to down there and it was just it was a stress on me and i just it, it wasn't the position that i'd signed on for uh and no no hard feelings or anything between me or them uh it was just like and you know honestly like as the time kind of like crept up i realized i didn't want to be the national fernet bronca brand ambassador because that surely would have meant my life ending and you know 
<laughs> in a few months. <laughs> Can you imagine being the national brand ambassador for Fernet Branca? Like, I, I I have a hard time remembering like, you know, my my the lyrics to my own songs. Like, I can't remember that many bartenders' names. You know, <laughs> so it would have been it would have been insane. Uh, it would have been cool if I were like ten years younger. But um, yeah, and it was a great experience working with them. It was something to check off my bucket list. Um, but it ultimately, uh, it was uh, you know me getting a little bit older, but also I met the love of my life, who you've met and we've gone to dinner with, uh, Jamie. Indeed. So congratulations, uh, by the way, you put a ring. Thank on you. Us. Yeah, yeah, she put a ring on me. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's originally from uh, Marin County, which is where we live now. And I was just ready to like kind of slow down a little bit. And you know, the brand ambassador lifestyle is you know, I mean, you know it all too well, right? Um, it's it's definitely it's 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 easier to do when you're single, I would say. <laughs> um, Unless you, know, you marry and, one. <laughs> yeah, unless you marry another brand ambassador, right? Um, but yeah, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very intense lifestyle, right? Um, so, and it's fun. It can be really fun, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was just kind of like looking for something a little bit more local personally, uh, at the time. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm still very much a, a fan of Fernet Branca and, you know, obviously it's kind of funny now because like my staff at, at Grand Army, uh, they're amazing. And I got to meet a lot of new people. I was there last week. Sorry, we didn't get to meet up. Uh, it was kind of a whirlwind, and I had a lot of catching up to do with Grand Army. Um, but the staff there is just insanely cool and nice and just creative and fun and, you know, everything that Grand Army should be. And I love how they've taken the hard start as a two-part, uh, you know, shot for half for not Bronca, half Bronca Minta. They, you know, so it that shot actually came second um, because I come up with a cocktail called the waterfront that I was working on when I was at Linnell's LTD back in Red Hook. And, you know, the mid two thousands, um, I started really getting into Bronca Minta and I was mixing it with ginger ale and, you know, a squeeze of lime and it, you know, very refreshing. Um, but then I was like, well, the Bronca Minta is a little sweet in here. And so is the ginger beer. And I, so I started using ginger or sorry, ginger ale. I, then I switched it to ginger beer, but I was like, yeah, still too minty. So then I started cutting it with Fernet Branca. So the waterfront is actually, it holds the record for the most Fernet Branca in any cocktail ever. And I can't see anyone using more Fernet in any cocktail, but it's two ounces of Fernet and one ounce of Branca Minta, half an ounce of lime and topped with ginger beer. Um, and so that mixture of uh, kind of cutting the sweetness of Branca Minta and kind of subduing the the bitterness of the uh, Fernet Branca with the Branca Minta, it balanced out to a way uh, where it, you know, kind of made it a little bit more pleasant for it, it. That cocktail was on the opening menu for Prime Meats, which opened in 2008. And it was a way, it was kind of like a gateway drug for people to get into Fernet Branca if they it, were kind What's of opposed to it. Yeah, yeah, right. Most people do. And um, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, it was at brunch one day where uh, one of the managers was very hungover, as was I. I was actually working at brunch shift um, and, uh, you know, it was clopening. So needed some sort of uh, some sort of corpse reviver ish uh, pick me up. Uh, and uh, I just mixed the Fernet Bronco and Bronco Minta and passed it on to him. He's, he was the one who actually coined the name for it. And uh, I was like, I was like, this is going to fix you. Trust me. 
So we took him down and he was like, you know what you should call that? And I was like, what? He knows I'm a classic car motorcycle guy. He's like, you know what it's called? That thing when you like the battery's dead and you roll down the hill and you put it in gear and you pop the clutch. I was like, yeah, it's called a hard start. And he's like, that's the name of that. <laughs> and so that's where the name came from. But it's funny that Grand Army employees, bartenders have taken the hard start and started using it as an ingredient in uh, the greater recipe for a cocktail. Um, and oh, so they're, build, you know, they're building it in. They're building it in as an ingredient, kind of like PIMS, you know, because PIMS is actually, you know, it's, uh, well, PIMS number one is, it's a mixture of gin and vermouth and curacao, right? Uh, All essentially. Mixes, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, you know, and when you think about it, a lot of, a lot of older uh, ingredients are, they're kind of like pre-bottled cocktails, you know, Campari and, and vermouth, you know, they never would have mixed them together until the Milano Torino or Torino Milano, depending on where you're from. Um, but those, you know, Italians didn't mix those things together because they were like, this is, this is the cocktail. We already did it for you. It's in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, to me, it's like, it's cool that the hard starts gotten such love around the world. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll pop into a place I've never been before and I've never met any of the bartenders and they'll recognize me and then they'll send out rounds of hard starts. And, uh, so it's kind of cool, you know, like, um, well, I'll tell you just, a nice story about it if you like, Yeah, um, for our, sure. our mutual friends, man about town and easily the burliest spirits writer at the New York times, Robert Simonson, uh, sure. just listed it in his New York 50 bar list. Um, he put grand army in yeah. there and oh, we are going to talk about grand army. But, you know, he puts in the notable drinks of each bar, and it's the hard start. And there's a full-ass press trip that friends of mine organize in Italy every year. And they're kind enough to invite me and Elaine along. And in fact, they ask us to help inviting people who don't know uh, them, right? Because you get a weird email. Hey, do you want to come to Cambodia? How about Italy? And (laughs) one year, I had recommended Robert. So Robert came along on the trip with us. And we had a bit of downtime, so we went to the Fernabranca um, distillery. And we're being shown around, and you've been there, I guess, right? Yeah, for yeah, sure. It, it's it's cool as fuck. It's an entire city block. There's, like, living quarters there for some of the staff. There's yeah. My favorite thing was there's a whole table with business school theses about Fernet, right, in different <laughs> languages. Like, they've got so many of them. They have to stack them up. But we, you kind of walk through us. It's sort of a, you know, square thing, uh, circuit, as it were. And you come out into the the cavernous bar, and uh, the older gentleman—I forget his name—but he's he's been there for like nine hundred years, and he's <laughs> he's getting drinks made for us. And he's like, "Well, this is a combination," and he serves us a hard start. And Robert, uh, God bless him, said, "Have you heard of a drink called a hard start?" And he's like, "No, I haven't." And he said, "What is this? It's that." So. <laughs> it's that that's everything coming uh full circle and you've just given the origin story i think for the first time of the hard start so let's keep pushing the envelope on the philip dove show uh who was the genius who named it his name is bill mann uh he was the at the time he was the uh general manager at prime meats and he's since moved to austin texas um and uh, he's he's running some restaurants down there, uh, and he's he's one of the funniest guys I've ever met in my life. And um, he, so, uh, and he's fine with me telling the story. There was a, a situation where uh, Mapesh, uh, one of the Momofuku restaurants in Midtown, New York City, 
they were doing this uh this series for bartenders and it's called like homies i believe and um so it was it's people who'd worked for momofuku in the past and they wanted to bring on like one of their like mentor friends or you know co-workers or one of their favorite bartenders that they've worked with in the past or currently right. and it was uh karen Fu, and she brought me uh-huh. um the, the great karen Fu. and where did you uh, guys work together she worked there she worked she at prime meets oh did she i didn't know that dude so the craziest thing is prime meets had it was a who's who of new york bartenders and it was such a small, intimate kind of bar. I mean, like we're really tight. And, Let's do the roll you know, call for people who don't know, because it's not as absolutely as it should be. Uh, um, sure. I, I'm going to go fuck every now and then because it was yeah. kind of before my time. I spent a long time coming to New York, and I would never go to Brooklyn. Right? I wouldn't be allowed to go to yeah. Brooklyn, or there'd be nothing. You were there. one of those. <laughs> uh, well, no, I don't hate Brooklyn. I think it's fine as a separate country but <laughs> it was it was bubbling under the whole time right it was incubating and prime meats was one of those incubators i kind of became aware of it i had dinner there once me and the wife and uh, jim Meehan and his wife and if you got to go to prime meats and i actually remember we got up from the table me and jim it was like looking back it was remarkably sexist we left the ladies at the table and went to the bar leaned on the bar each had a shot of frenette and i didn't quite understand why you know, it was like a scene from Yellowstone. <laughs> so let's do the roll call of Prime Meats, RIP, obviously, but uh, what, a, what a place it was. Yeah, it was around for 10 years, and uh, they just decided to – it's still – the 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 Franks uh, of Frankie's Spuntino, they still own it. Uh, they changed it to Frank's Wine Bar. Um, there was, you know, different reasons. They were kind of like wanting to get a little bit more meat conscious. So that really just to kind of back up, Prime Meats was – it started as a bar. Um, before there was food, it was really confusing because I think we were getting uh, articles in like the New York Times about the cocktails before the food ever was written about. Because <laughs> we we As had it open. should be, yeah. But it was it was called Prime Meats, and it, there was no food, so it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, we opened up with Cabell Tomlinson, uh, who was you know Death and Company Cabell? manager. Cabell worked there. Katie Stipe worked there. Natasha David, Souther Teague. Uh, Thomas Waugh, um, Nate Dumas, um, Karen Fu, obviously, uh, Rachel Kim, uh, Garrett Richard. Um, Jesus Christ. Does, yeah, Garrett, the list goes Garrett on. was only 12 years old then. So what was he was he only 12. Him? So, yeah, we actually had to hide him. <laughs> we, we would hide him in the uh, the walk-in whenever, you know, the department. He, of he also around. still looks around <laughs> 13 or 14. Like, there's yeah. a... There's a terrible picture of him somewhere in an attic. He made a devilish bar- <laughs> bargain, that guy. <laughs> he he went to the crossroads for sure. That's right. Um, geez, the list goes on. Gabe Henderson, who used to run uh, Weather Up in Brooklyn um, before he also moved to Austin. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, well, let me ask yeah, you a the- question. We're going to talk about bars, right? Yeah. Um, things coalesce. Uh, the cocktail oh, thing wait, going. Sorry, I want to. I want to finish that thought though. With with Bill Mann. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> so oh, you're Karen, the story. That's right. Yeah. Karen, you, Karen Fu. Karen Fu. Doing, homies at uh, yeah, Mapesh. At Mapesh. So we're we're doing our night and it's wildly packed. And Bill and his his partner they come in and they're they 
they'd had some edibles and uh they were just kind of like standing there like giggling they snuck in their own like bag of triscuits and they were just like giggling the entire time and so all of a sudden bill's like he's up at the bar and he's like he's like it's so busy it's so busy he's like can i just come behind the bar and hide out and like he's like freaking out i'm like no but uh you know like i don't know this is not my bar i'm just making drinks and whatnot anyway so at one point he's like damon he like leans in close and he's like two spots over pointing like next to him and i look over and it's emerald lagasse and so so and with a buddy and so Holy Emerald's shit. There. and so yeah and so he's like he's like you know what to do right and i'm like i think i i think i know what you're trying to get out of here he's like you know what to do and so I go over and Emerald and his buddy, they order vodka sodas, which is really jarring for me. I was like, vodka sodas? Weird. Okay. I mean, you're supposed to be this like this famous chef. You know? I guess I'll stop you there. Just to like half my listeners are not American. Uh, okay. Emerald Lagasse is like a legend of New Orleans cuisine. Right, he's he's a big TV celebrity chef. You know, he's had his own range of products. Uh, yeah, you know, there's like jars yeah. and sauces, and he he's very yeah. recognizable. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but his his catchphrase is "Bam," <laughs> right? So nice. I, I make I make the two vodka sodas and I put them down. I'm like, here you go. You didn't say "Bam." bam. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I said "Bam." <laughs> two vodka sodas, bam, and he just kind of looked at me and kind of smirked and was like. All right, all right. Like, like I haven't heard that before. Anyway, moving on. That's my yeah. uh, Karen Fu and uh, <laughs> and my pet story. But yeah, uh, it's a great canon of uh, New York City bartenders who have moved on. Most of them have uh, uh, opened up their own places since you know, and it's I'm very proud of the team that we had there. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because it's going to be a very amateurish bridge to talking about Grand Army and some other things. Um. The cocktail movement really got going. We're in the second cocktail golden age, but it kicked off eight years before it really got going in the US around 1995 in the UK. Right. And, you know, it's ground central, you know, the the Wuhan bat cave, if you will, of mixology in London was the Atlantic Bar and Grill, which was founded by an Irish guy who wanted an elegant place to drink late at night because in London, literally everyone closed at 11. I remember trawling the streets sure. of London with nobody less than Simon Difford. And if you can't find a bar <laughs> after 11 in London with Simon Difford, it's time to give up sure. on life. Um, and he wanted a place that wasn't a booming nightclub full of sweaty, ecstasy-necking teenagers. So he created this elegant late-night place, and he took a guy who had previously pretty much only worked in private clubs, and he put him in charge of the bars because this guy knew how to make cocktails that were just perfect, fresh juices, old recipes, you know, bit of chat. And that guy's name was Dick Radsell. Right. So obviously everybody who came out of there then went to other places. So you probably heard about the Lab Bar in London or Alphabet Bar. So what I'm trying to say is Prime Meats was what, 2008, something like that? Right. 2008 would have been the start um there's uh when you when you'd go back there like really i started with that company in 2007 as a consultant uh and i was really just going to be a consultant and then move on but then i just really dug it and you know just the culture around what the franks built and you know we used to have some really crazy parties in the backyard of frankie's and like some really wild that was only two two years after pdt 
Sure. Right. And what tends to happen is first one place opens and everyone wants to work there, but you can't work anywhere else because there's nowhere for you to go. And then maybe a second place opens and you're like, okay, well now if I go from here to there, I'm going to piss everybody off. But when there's a third place and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth, then you've got a circuit. So it feels like this was on the circuit in a way, or was it just that you guys make good money? Like what? Um, it was, it was kind of a combination. Really, it was a combination of many things, right? So it was the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of these bartenders were living in Brooklyn and there wasn't really anything there yet. Right. There was, um, I'm forgetting the name of the place, uh, in Williamsburg, um, not Maison Premier. It predates that actually. Jake, my business partner. Jake Walk? No, Jake Walk was in Carroll Gardens where, uh, oh, okay. I know nothing yeah. about the geography of Brooklyn. I, there's uh, 72 <laughs> neighborhoods and I can name, uh, two of them. <laughs> Williamsburg and Bushwick, baby. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, it it was really just kind of like a it was filling a gap for something that wasn't there in kind of like like South Brooklyn or like uh, you know even to, to downtown Brooklyn. It was kind of funny because like when that all happened, like there was nothing happening in downtown Brooklyn, uh, you know. And so, it, it, but you know, all these bartenders were living in like Carroll Gardens and Park Slope and you know Williamsburg and uh, further out even in Bushwick and whatnot. And so it was, but also like you think about Carroll Gardens and, and Park Slope, it's like you've got a very like affluent, like very cultured, like clientele that really wants that sort of thing. So um, right at the time that we opened Prime Meats, Clover Club was opening. Uh, like they opened at the same time. And it was just kind of a ama- an amazing thing because we had the same clientele, right? So we would get people in those early days of Prime Meats, it was you know, we would be, it was only the bar room. So there were seven tables and it was standing only at the bar. We didn't have bar seats because it wasn't period accurate for like the 1880s. And so, um, you remember when you used to be able to get away with that kind of, <laughs> I know, behavior. I know. Right. Like, it was awesome. Oh, those were the only. days. Those were the <laughs> yeah. fucking days. Yeah. And when we got our first times review, we got two stars and, um, and it would have been three. We were told, um, had we taken credit cards one and also we were so new that we hadn't gotten a fulfillment for our linen orders so we were still using paper napkins they were nice paper napkins mind you but um you know you know leggy old knives on paper napkins it's kind of a funny thing um i mean just to jump in on that in the whole review thing right um and you know we have now reviews for bars and we have 50 best and all this kind of thing But in the Michelin world and in the hotel star world, you know, a lot of the reviewing is very uh, old world. Like, for instance, if you're a luxury hotel, but you don't have an umbrella for guests in the room, you get dinged. You know, if you don't have if you don't have a concierge, you get dinged. And the thing is now. One night I was drinking at the Artesian Bar in London before it was cool. (coughs) And Alex Cretano was there and he had his phone behind the bar and iPhones were still relatively new then. And he said, this is like the best because before 
if somebody wanted to get tickets for the you know a show or get a reservation somewhere or even just to have directions to go somewhere i would say oh go out and talk to the concierge but now i can do it here for them concierges are still very 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 valuable but like dinging people for shit like that isn't keeping up with I mean, a lot really, of I mean, the preferences that people have these days well, speaking of something very British, um, you know, like and the the umbrella thing, it's like modern Rolls Royces have an umbrella that's like when you open the door, where the the edge of the door, an umbrella pops out. Yeah, you know, like that's that's luxurious. You know, that's like that's attention to detail, right? But then, like when you think about, it, especially with hotels, I'm fascinated by hotel management and kind of concept because, like, you know, especially when it comes to the thing that the thing that really gets me about modern hotels a lot of them that are kind of like uh, you know try they're they're trying to be elevated but not quite luxury it's like just please just have proper glassware you know, like i don't uh, even care uh, if there's a mini, if there's a mini bar in the room or if i've got to get it from like the lobby or whatever i don't care just have a proper rocks glass like don't have some it, like glassware is my biggest thing right and like and i've got a whole i could go on a whole tangent about the the libby 3773 coupe glass uh, if, if you want to, but um, it, it's an ode to that. I've been meaning to write an article for like Punch or something <laughs> that one. Yeah, but, but is, anyway. isn't that the brown M um, and M? You know the story. It's like yeah, if they, sure. If they get the glassware right, they've probably got everything else right. Right, right. And if they right. don't, you've got to check it all. Like the brown M and M for anyone who's been living in a fucking cave for 30 years is <laughs> I don't I, I really must look this up it was a mega rock band touring the US doing stadiums and stadium gigs were still new right rock bands didn't tour it like if you watch the Queen biopic Queen were the first one they might have been but you, they had to bring all this huge amount of equipment with them uh, I'm, I know you know this I'm just explaining this to anybody else listening I want to say um, it's Led Zeppelin it could be, let's say. It could. I yeah. always, I kind of always thought it was ACDC. Anyway, and so they had huge amounts of speakers. They needed massive amounts of power. They needed freight elevators that could take this kind of weight. So they had a massive technical rider. And right at the back of the technical rider was the band rider, which is like, okay, have, you know, 10 virgins in the dressing room and a, a fridge <laughs> full of beer. But they put in very cleverly, we want like a massive bowl of M&Ms with all the brown ones taken out. So Racist. <laughs> whenever, the, whenever the technical crew showed up, they would go straight to the dressing room and see. And if they hadn't taken the brown M&Ms out, the technical crew knew they would have to check everything, right? right. Because if how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you haven't taken the brown M&Ms out, you might not have checked to see if the freight elevator is graded for a ton or if you have mainline power for all the speakers. So if you go to a luxury hotel and you're paying, let's say, I don't know, what's luxury? 500 and up a night? And they've got shitty glass? Well, it kind of flips you from being, oh my God, I'm in a luxury hotel. It's like, what else are they fucking up you know, and I'm wondering how many of us really pay attention to that detail. I mean, certainly in the bar world, right? Um, in our in our industry, uh, I would say that, that like we 
we we're always looking out for that anyway. Like when we go to a restaurant or bar, you know, and especially when you go to a hotel, I don't care if I'm just drinking water out of it. It's, you know, it's like one of those things that gets me and robes. Can I have a good robe? No, but everyone's got a thing. Every, <laughs> yeah, everyone's sure. got a thing for some people like my wife, it's sheets. She has sure. to have sheets. Like we once slept at the Omni in New Orleans and she loved the sheets so much, she tracked down the industrial company that makes them and found <laughs> out that you can buy them. And those are the sheets I sleep in. I can buy the 1999 sheets from Ikea and be perfectly happy. I'm a kind of a, a stoic guy. And somebody else, it'll be the seat and somebody else, it'll be this. You know, you've got to have a philosophy that the shabby chic Ace Hotel um, and indeed Nomad Hotel uh, aesthetic is something that's taken over. And it's it's very Brooklyn as well. It's like, we're luxury on the things that matter. We're luxury on the food. We're luxury on the drinks. And the rest, we're kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Like, no I just, I just, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just remember three more people who worked at Rare Meats. Uh, Tristan Willie, Robbie Nelson, and Jim Kearns. <laughs> oh, fuck me. That's a murderer's row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was insane. Anyway, yeah, but like, wait, say, wait, say it again. Tristan, Jim, and Robbie Nelson. Oh fuck me, that's amazing. Je- Jeff Galley was also there. Yes, uh, Jeff Galley, uh, his his, you know, he was at Chart Number Four for a long time, which was a whiskey bar. Then he came on the team, and he owns a restaurant in Livingston, Montana, which uh, won best. There was there was a review uh, that came out a few months back about like the best restaurant in every state in the United States and his restaurant uh, Campione won. you know, it's, it's a big state too. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of space in between cities, but like um, for his like little Italian spot, that's beer and wine only, you know, Campione won. So he's like one of, one of the best and he's one of the greatest hospitality figures that I've ever met. And, you know, he's just one of those guys who, like speaking of glass beer and hotels, his attention to detail is so on point that like, you know how, like when you go into a, a, a bar or restaurant or hotel, like, and you've kind of, you kind of understand what to expect, but then someone just kind of like does these little things that, that just kind of maybe, maybe most people wouldn't notice, but then, then afterwards are like, did that guy just, did he do this thing? Like that was incredible. You know, like, you know, you know what like, that's called, right? It's called dream weaving. It's like the 11 Madison Park. Yeah, like I totally. was recently um, in January, I was back in Italy and one of the finest bars in the world that everyone is going to hear a lot more about is the atrium bar in the four seasons in Florence. Right. Oh yeah. Firenze for the more pretentious. Firenze. My favorite city in the world. Really? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, I can understand it. Except you and me are fucking peasants there. It is dripping <laughs> money. Like the peasants yeah. there drive Maseratis. Anyway, that's right. There was <laughs> we were having a little uh reception on this press tour. And by the way, there's nothing better than being on a press tour when you're not even a writer. You have to do even less work than the, the other people. <laughs> and Eduardo Sandri, the manager, he knew we were all coming. Right. But you know the way they come in drips and drabs, but he knew everybody who was coming, or at least he knew their names and stuff like that. And I rolled up myself and Mrs. Duff and somebody else. 
And before we got into the bar, he greeted us in this kind of lobby. And he said, oh, Philip, Elaine, here you are. And he had shots of Jameson and mini Guinnesses. And I'm like, oh, that's that's nice. I don't actually drink Guinness, but of course I had some. And as I walked into the <laughs> bar, it, it was a, a vodka martini party. It occurred to me, it's like, wait a second. So I walked back out. He had personalized shots for everybody. The Italian person got something Italian. The English person got something English. Oh, man. Went, that's amazing. I know. Yeah, right? that's incredible. Well, let's yeah, do- I love I love that man. That's like to me. That's just like the elevation that you know. Like uh, my wife Jamie and I were at a sushi spot in San Francisco uh, a couple of months ago, and the you know the chefs back there like holding court, you know, and he's got his his sous chef cooks around him, and he's this very old Japanese guy, right? And like, um, and he tells one of the waiters, "It's like go over there and like." Because we were, you know, doing omakase. And so he was like, go turn his plate the other way. I'm left-handed. So he wanted the plate to be turned around the other way. So I would go in that order. I was just like, that's... For him to see that I was holding my chopsticks in the the wrong hand, (laughs) air quotes, uh, you know, just like that attention to detail. Like, I never had anyone do that before. is how you do everything. He noticed. So I'm guessing the food was good. It was excellent. <laughs> it's it like if you, if you go to the Capitol Grill, which is not the greatest steakhouse in the world, they'll give you a black napkin if you're wearing black pants. And they'll give you a oh, white one if you're wearing something lighter colored. Right. That's amazing. I love that. That like, to me is like, that's what my friend Jeff Galley does. You know, it's like just understanding and kind of like predicting the needs and just kind of like be, being he's like he's like a the maestro you know he just like understands all that stuff so yeah i mean just it's those details are really what it's like that's just what makes it all so exciting to me well it's nice let's do a little roll call sure. right um of of the og prime meets people and um, let's apologize in advance if We've forgotten anybody because certainly I wasn't there and you drink. So, you know, Uh, Karen moved away out of New York. No. She she went to L.A. Yeah, she went to L.A. Is she still bartending? She's still bartending. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure where she's at now, but I know that she's she's working. I'm pretty sure about Um, that. Damon, we'll get to you later. Uh, Pabble, I actually, she came to a friend's party at the end of last year and I saw her. And she's in like wine sales, I think. Yeah, she 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 went to LA and then she moved to Virginia for family stuff. And then she's back in LA doing wine sales. And you know, a lot of a lot of the people that um I've worked with in the past have kind of moved on into like sales and distribution, which is kind of a natural progression a lot of times for bartenders. Uh, if you're not going to open a bar, it's like that's kind of like the direction you go in. Right? To sell is to serve, and to serve is to sell. Right. We're all in sales. Uh, I mean, <laughs> um, good one, actually, because I hadn't thought about her in a while. The the leggy dancer herself, Katie Stipe. Where's Katie these days? She's in Portland, Oregon. Um, uh, she's working at a bar called Boise, and uh, it's it's a really awesome bar. Um, yeah, she's been out there for. Jeez, time's really escaping me. I probably five, six years at this point. But she actually helped. She was working at 
Grand Army, and so was Cavill. Yes. Uh, like when, in the I early saw. days. Yeah. 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 Uh, Natasha Davids moved upstate and she's just taken a job for a hospitality group that has right. like, like, you know, hotels and stuff like that. Tom Waugh, I think, relocated back to California, didn't he? Yeah, he's in the Bay Area. He's uh, doing a little bar work out here, but he's also, you know, he's still working with Major Food Group as a uh, like kind of bar director consultant. Is he? So, really? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Really? He's, oh, wow. Yeah, totally. So Souther, we'll talk about Souther in a moment. He's very much still in the game. <laughs> Garrett is over at Sunken Harbor Club, which is just a stunner of Incredible. a bar. Tristan has good vodka. Yep. I think that's his main thing now. Uh, Jim Kearns became a brewer. Yeah. And I think, yes, right. He had, he had, he had the happiest hour and slowly, surely. Which, no, uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm getting mixed up with my gyms. I'm actually thinking about Jim Betts. Jim Kearns, happiest hour, surely. But during COVID, I think he moved to middle America. Um, yeah, and and I heard that he was... I think he was working on a distillery, a brewery, something. It's, it's hard to keep track of all these people and all their things. Well, well, Robbie uh, did a lot of stuff. He's working for a mass, which is non-alcoholics on a gin. Then he was working. The last I saw him, uh, well, he was he, at Boisson, which was all he was at Boisson, all the non-alcoholics. But he's now working for Rosaluna tequila, tequila Company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Rosaluna, which is excellent. All right, we so, had a lot of that last week. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. And he just got engaged. So congratulations to him and Corey Joe. Shout out to Robbie. So I want to go back on your bartending career. You moved from Ohio, yeah, to no, New York? No, Oklahoma. The other Oklahoma. O state. <laughs> ah, the other O. Excellent. Yeah. How many are there? Like 40, 50? I don't know. Yeah, um, something like that. And where did you learn to bartend? Like really, you know, how to make nice cocktails? Yeah, so I started collecting cocktail books when I was 12 years old, um, just because I would find them at antique stores. And my like my with my dad, you know, my twin brother, my mom and dad, we would go to like antique stores all the time because we're big, you know, on on the the dad side, we're into like classic cars and classic motorcycles and you know, restoring them and 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 whatnot. And then on mom's side, she's you know, I I it was very much like your kind of meat and potatoes, like middle America kind of thing, like working working on cars with dad and like building. So my dad is an aerospace engineering degree from OU and Holy he shit. was, uh, but he got into like local kind of local politics. He was uh, our County commissioner for 30 years. He's been retired for about 10 years now, maybe longer. Um, and our, our mother, she, you know, she was very much like the she had twin boy. So she was, she was not. She was not just like the the stay at home mom. She was also working, you know. And uh, but the thing is, like, what I would do with dad was very like you know manly, like farm kind of stuff. And then like with mom, it was like cooking in the kitchen. So when we go to like these antique stores, I would always like you know look at the book section, uh, and I would find like old manuals for like rebuilding a carburetor for a car or whatever. And then in the same uh, book section, I would hang out with my mom and look at old cookbooks. But I found out that in the cookbook section, there were also cocktail books. And me being naive in the Bible Belt, you know, 12-year-old kid, I thought that these, it was basically like pornography. Like, I knew I wasn't supposed to have it. Or at least I thought I wasn't, you know, like with a cocktail book, I was like, you can't have this till you're 21. Um, but I would look in in these cocktail books, and I would 
read the recipes and they read in the same way that like, uh, you know, a, a, a cake recipe or, you know, a pie recipe would read, uh, you know, just like the format. Right. And me being a graphic designer, I, I really dig like editorial layout and formats. Right. But then I also noticed that it was kind of like a procedural thing, much like the service manual for an old tractor or old car or whatever. So it was kind of like this binding between like my mom's and dad's world. Right. But the thing is, what really struck me was the stories that would come from these these old cocktail books. And it was a way for me. It was like kind of like a, my passport into the world, you know, and I, I would read about, you know, things like Curacao. <laughs> I didn't know how to pronounce these things. I didn't know what what kind of what it's a blue orange. It, that sounds exotic to me. Like, how do you make I've never seen a blue orange. <laughs> so anyway, um, it, I was just extremely intrigued by the stories and kind of like the, these uh, ingredients that I'd never heard of. And like, and I, I wouldn't really know what they were for years, but I started buying, you know, for like a quarter or 50 cents, you know, uh, or a dollar, you know, that was a big spin uh, at these old antique stores buying like these old cocktail books. And I would like hide them under my bed, you know, like, so I wouldn't get busted with them. <laughs> and I just started reading cocktail books. And then, you know, eventually like when I, graduated from school from graphic design i went into that world into like print and uh, media and, and design and whatnot but i got bored with it pretty quickly because you know you know sitting in front of computer screens all day uh as someone who likes to talk is not a, a really great situation to be in um so i ended up opening my first business which was a scooter shop um because I'm a big Vespa guy, uh, like antique Vespas and Lambrettas and stuff. I was a I was a mod, believe it or not. I know you know me as the long haired, long bearded guy, but uh, I did have a Lambretta with tons of lights and mirrors on the front, you know, Quadrophenia style. Um, and I uh, love that. <laughs> they and especially in Oklahoma City, you know, this was uh, I, I stood out quite well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I had that scooter shop. And then as soon as I opened it, uh, we had like all this interest from the local Harley Davidson dealership, the local BMW motorcycle dealership. They were like, they wanted to buy our shop. And so my business partner at the time worked for Glaciers, which is now Southern Glacier Wine and Spirits. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of like right there at that point. But then anyway, we, we ended up selling the business for a great profit. At this time, my band was like going on tour. We were getting signed to a label, and like, so I and, and I'd already bought my house when I was nineteen. Like, you know, like because you could do that in Oklahoma City, and like back then, at least you could. Uh, it's grown quite a bit since then. But anyway, so I worked in design, scooters, motorcycles, music. I, I pretty much tapped out all my hobbies at this point. Everything that I love to do. So I'm sitting at my friend's, the one cocktail bar that existed back then, and this is in the early two thousands. Uh, it's called Electro Lounge. My friend Brian Neal owned it, and he still owns a bunch of bars and restaurants around Oklahoma City. Um, but he was the first person to ever make me a martini properly. You know, in Oklahoma City, it, back in the early 2000s, you couldn't find you could find Angostura bitters, but you couldn't find orange bitters. He actually brought some orange bitters back, probably from New York, um, from one of his trips. Um, he made me a proper first of all he stirred it and he used vermouth uh and it had orange bitters in it and i was and it was like this just this revelation for me i was like oh my god this is like 
I, I've never had a martini made properly, even though I've had all these old books and I've read about how this is supposed to be done. And, you know, I, so it, it was, he's still a really great friend of mine. Um, I don't see him as often as I like to, but anyway, he made me a martini one day. Or sorry, a Manhattan one day, and which is you know one of my favorite cocktails, and and that was the reason for me to move to New York City. I had never been a bartender, I never worked in the service industry, but I'm like sitting there in my in my early twenties. I'd grown up very quickly, and I've got a Mar- uh, a Manhattan in front of me, and I'm like thinking like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And the answer was literally right under my nose. It's a Manhattan cocktail. I was like, oh, my God, I've been studying cocktails for the last 10 years. And I've been making them at home. It's just as well he didn't make you in Alaska. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like the hottest bartender in Anchorage, right? <laughs> oh, my God. After watching this recent season of True Detective, I, I don't think I ever want to go to Alaska. Um, Dude, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> it's gnarly. It's gnarly. It uh, we just finished it last good. night. <laughs> I haven't finished it yet. No spoilers on this. No spoilers on this I'm show. Up to, I'm up to like episode six, but Jody Foster uh, on fuck. Yeah, killing it. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was it was a thing, and I asked him. I was like, right then and there, I was like, hey, you know what? I I know a thing or two about cocktails. Uh, would you train me to be a bartender? He kind of laughed in my face. He was like, dude. He's like, if you want to bartend, he's like, go work somewhere else. If you last six months in the service industry then come talk to me and I'll start training you. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I go to my local and I, uh, I, you know, I have friends who work there, friends who are managers. I'm friendly with the owners. And I was like, Hey, can you give me a job? I want to early want to start bartending. And they're like, well, you got to start on the floor as a server. I was like, all right. So I was a waiter for two weeks. They called me early and uh, on a lunch shift into the office. They're like, yeah, we need to talk to you. So come in early. I get there. Go in the office. They're like, so how do you think things are going? Uh, you know, we took a chance on you. You never worked in, the, in a restaurant or bar before. And I'm like, yeah, I think things are going pretty good. You know, uh, how do you think they're going? I'm like, well, we've gotten a lot of complaints about you. And I'm like, what? No way. Like, I thought the customers really liked me. And they're like, oh, yeah, the customers love you. The staff hates you, specifically <laughs> the bartenders. And I'm like, what? Really? And they're like, yeah, they say you're like telling them how to make drinks. And like, they're really mad about it because like, you're not a bartender and you keep like telling them that they're doing things wrong. I'm like, Oh, cause they are. And they're like, Oh yeah. So what makes you think, you know, that I'm like, well, I've been studying this for 10 years. I, you know, I know you can't learn everything from books, but I at least know more. And this is close to the Capitol building of Oklahoma, like in downtown right. Oklahoma city. So, you know, it's a lot of like old politicians and lobbies, people who've been drinking uh, Rob Roy's and, you know, old fashions and martinis and, like all their lives, you know, for decades. And you've got these young punk kids who don't, no shit, you know? And so anyway, they were like, so give me an example. I'm like, well, first of all, this guy, this regular that I used to sit next to before I worked there uh, at the bar, he he loves Manhattans. And uh, the bartender, like one of them, I was like, they just botched that drink so badly. And they're like, what do you think they did wrong? I'm like, well, first of all, they, we have rye here. We had a bottle of like Jim Beam rye, you know? Uh, it, but they were like, they just grabbed, they grabbed Maker's Mark Nothing wrong with Maker's Mark, but you should have asked, first of all. Um, they free poured it into the shaker, shaker tin, okay? Um, free poured it, didn't use the Angostura bitters, which are on the bar top. They never touched the bitters for some reason because they didn't know how to use them. And then instead of vermouth, they so many wrong things here. They took the tray out of the garnish uh, setup, 
with the the as Robert Simonson uh, called back here would call tail light red cherries. You know those fake ones with the the yes. bright red juice, the chemical cherries. Yeah, so they took their fingers to strain back the cherries, poured the cherry juice into the shaker. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you've got Maker's Mark, a fine bourbon, right? And then you've got totally compromised juice with dirty bartender fingers <laughs> uh, going in there. And that's it. And they shook the shit out of it, poured it into a martini glass. And then after all that, they didn't even garnish it with those cherries. Ungarnished mud. It looked like the brown M&M, right? And they just passed it along to the guest. And I saw this guy. His name is Steve. I saw him. His, he just kind of like deflated. And Steve's just like, <sighs> but he knew that like, he had to drink it. There was there was no way. But surely to get he always got his Manhattan that way, or had he just like ordered a Manhattan on a whim? Because he was a regular there, right? He's a regular, but like every time, like it, it was it was made wrong, you know. And so anyway, so I tell I tell the owners and the managers that, and they're like, "Oh my god, you got to be kidding me!" And they're like, "Well, how would you make it?" And I'm like, "Do you want me to tell you? Or do you want me to show you?" And they're like, "All right, all right." So let's go down to the bar. So we walked down, uh, the office was kind of like on the second floor and like, go back, go down to the bar. And I'm like, literally throw any classic cocktail at me and I'll make it for you. And they're like, all right, so why don't we start with the Manhattan since you think you know how to do that? And I'm like, all right, cool. You want rye in that, right? And they're like, well, yeah. I mean, that's classic, right? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know, I build it right. Bitters first, vermouth, rye, stirred. You know, and I was like, you know what? I don't like these cherries. I actually like mine with a twist when in a situation like this. It, and they're like, oh, okay, great. So I did it with a twist. I passed it over. And they're like, this is the best Manhattan I've ever had. The two owners had been sober for like 10 years. And they're like, when I used to drink. And they, and they were from Austin. So, you know, there's at least, you know, they had, you know, cocktail bars around. And like, this reminds me of like going to a proper cocktail bar. And they're like, all right. So like, what about a gimlet and, uh, you know, a martini and blah, blah, blah. So I'm, you know, making all these drinks. The staff starts kind of filing in. The bartenders last because they always shut up late and you know they're smoking cigarettes inside and doing all the things. And um anyway, so it, the bartenders who had complained about me walk well, in and they're like, What the fuck is Damon doing behind the bar? And they're like, Damon's behind the bar because he's the newest bartender on the staff. So I'd been in the industry for two weeks as a waiter, and then I became a bartender. And then two weeks later, I was the bar manager. A month into the industry with your relationship with between you and those bartenders who had reported you they just they be kind of begrudgingly like worked next to me until they started realizing that i could teach them things and and that's not to say that i I knew everything back then i was still like there's still so much to learn right but then the greatest part was brian neal came into the bar and he sat down and like while i was like going to grab ice i wasn't behind the bar yet and you know, at that moment when he came in and sat down and I come out through the swinging door, you know, and I load the ice bin with a bucket. I'm like, Hey, Brian, what's up? He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm the bar manager. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, man, you should have taken a chance. And he's like, all right, come by on Tuesday. And then that's when I started working at the, the one cocktail bar in uh, the, at the time in Oklahoma city. And that, that led me to New York city. But the funny thing is, and a lot of my friends who still work in graphic design and, and a lot of people who work in bars back then, they, uh, they, 
you know, when I moved to New York, it was hard for me to get a bartending job because I didn't have quote unquote New York experience, right? So I had to fall back on graphic design for a little bit until I found to fall back on graphic design. Usually back then people would fall back on working in the service industry, but for me, I had to fall back on graphic design. Um, but you know, it's really just like, I guess the moral of the story is just like loving what you do and doing what you love. Right. And you know, it's a, it's the greatest industry to be in, in my opinion. It's you can move fast if you just show up and keep your words. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's a low bar. (laughs) Yeah. And all you have to do is like care and, and have passion. And it's not hard to have passion about this because like I said, you know, like, the stories we've exchanged just in in this moment that we've been on air, it, it, pales in comparison, it pales in comparison to all the stories that you and I have shared when we're actually sitting in a bar or restaurant together. And those travel stories, I mean, like, I, I never would have gone to, or, or not that I never would have wanted to, I, I couldn't see myself getting to go to wonderful places like Bangkok and Cape Town, South Africa, and even like Florence, like the first time I went to Florence, the first few times I went to Florence were for work. And, you know, it became my favorite city in the world. Like all all the greatest places or most of the greatest places that I've been to in the world have been through this job, this industry, you know? So that alone. Let me jump over that. So you bartended for a good while, but then you became an owner, a founder uh, of uh, Grand Army Bar, which is an excellent bar, still there to this day. Tell me how that came about. Because so you were, you know, by turns an ambassador, a bartender. You're in London. You're in London. You're in New York. Uh, did you come up with the idea? Did somebody else ask you to come on board with Grand Army? So my friend uh, Julian, who's also my business partner, Julian Breezy, he was a an excellent, excellent waiter at prime meats it was so charming and just knowledgeable he used to write for some different magazines to uh different like food articles and whatnot and i just i was like taken away by him and i I was just like dude you've you've got to be a bartender like you like and he would say cocktails are like you just say stupid stuff like cocktails are dumb you know like or whatever you know and like wow uh, he's, he's, he's one of those people who can just kind of get away with saying whatever, you know, the, the certain people can just say whatever the hell they want and just their delivery, like lets them get away with it. And it's just funny, uh, and kind of endearing and charming. Uh, he's one of those people. So anyway, um, I, I trained him to bartend and, uh, Hotel Del Mano is the place I was thinking of in Williamsburg, by the way. Uh, oh. That was like one of the only ones. It was one of the first ones around. Um, anyway, he worked there uh, shortly after I trained him to bartend. He was doing both. And then he became a manager at Prime Eves, And then he moved on to open a little restaurant called Rucola, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is still there on Bond and Dean, I believe, uh, in Lake Borum Hill. Anyway, uh, about a block away, there's a place called Mile End, which is a, like a Quebecois, uh, Jewish delicatessen kind of awesome spot, like little like hips, especially like a smaller hipster version of Katz's Deli, right? Okay. Um, and so he opened several of the, the, the my other partner, Noah Bernamoff, uh, he opened several of those. He opened up a chain of restaurant, uh, bagel shops called Black Seed Bagel, uh, which are all over New York. And, um, and, uh, you know, together, the three of us, we were buddies and we would grab drinks and whatnot and we'd kind of go to some of the 
different parties around the neighborhood together. And um, yeah, there was a spot on the corner of State and Hoyt. And it used to be this like kind of tin covered, almost diner car, you know, looking uh, kind of spot on the corner. And it was called Victory Cafe. And it was just a little coffee shop. And it was in a quarter of the space that Grand Army's in. Right. So that that lot is actually it was split into four spaces. There were two coffee shops. One of them was like a bicycle repair shop, if I remember. And the other one was like just personal storage space. So everyone was trying to get that space uh, around the neighborhood. And just because it was cool. And it's it was the, the last brownstone tree lined street before you hit industrial downtown Brooklyn. So it's a really interesting kind of mix of like people you know brownstone brooklyn and then like high-rise condo newer brooklyn you know downtown and this is before really anything was happening down there anyway um so yeah we had this idea we're like let's let's do a cocktail bar together and then we actually got lucky because the the person who bought that building the company that bought that building was also the landlord of mile end so we had the inn Everyone else is like clamoring to get that space. And we actually, we just got lucky. And so that was back in 2013, 2014, we started working on it. Um, and then 2015, we opened. And, you know, the whole idea is just really, you know, as you put it, like back in the day, there were, you know, with what was happening in London in the nineties and then like in New York in the early two thousands and then into, you know, even the teens, the early teens, um, it was all the vest and tie curly mustache, you know, arm garters, you know, it, and we had to prove ourselves. To, no vodka, to, no cranberry juice. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it was, it was one of those things where it was like, it, it it annoyed the hell out of most people, most customers, but they were also intrigued by it, you know, and to a certain extent, because, um, you know, just they had to break out of their their daily routine, which is hard for people to do, um, uh, you know, when you find your comfort zone, especially in a place like New York City, where it's like you just you rely on that that cheap coffee and bagel in the morning, you know, like your daily routine just to get you going, you know. Um, so it was something that we had to do to, like, break out of the mold. And really kind of show people like what this is and like the the passion that comes behind it and that leads into the re respect for it or nothing without respect for these things right and so that led to you know about you know 15 years of us doing that and you know still to this day we were talking about it last week on the speakeasy you know the fact that we're able to have these bars where you're wearing hawaiian shirts and like you know, you can wear like kind of street clothes and whatever. It's like, and, you know, we've kind of gotten away from it. But the thing is, the quality of the product has gone up and, you know, the the attire is kind of relaxed, which is a really neat place to be, you know? And so anyway, that was kind of the idea with Grand Army. I was like, we're not going to wear vests and ties. We're going to like actually have fun. Um, we're going to have, we're going to be on a corner with lots of windows with natural light, plants everywhere, bright colors funky artwork i was like i want this to look and feel like a brooklyn apartment that way you know like my my co-host souther uh you know he says a lot of times like you know the reason why you're able to live in an apartment a small apartment in new york city is because of all the amenities the amenities in a small apartment do not exist 
the amenities are outside of the apartment. It's the proximity, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So realistically, your day in your living room, you, you know, you're you're talking about New York City, you know, what's outside of your apartment. And so I just wanted this place to be more of like an extension of someone's. Do you want to hear what I thought the first time I ever walked in there? Uh, Katie and and Cabell were working. Um, I don't think I even knew of your involvement. I might not even have known you. But I walked in and I think it was a Saturday or Sunday. It was brunch. And I looked looked around, you know, you got to make sure there's no weird part of the bar that you can't see. And I'm like, oh, shit. This is a, a Notting Hill gastropub, right? It reminded <laughs> me of nothing as much of nice. uh, as the kind of tarted up gastropubs you see in the, what is now the wealthy uh, Notting Hill suburb of London that also make really, really good cocktails. And I, to me, that's still the vibe. <laughs> cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You guys I've known all a- put money into this. Yeah. Did I mean, like, have we- to, like, invest cash money. We, we, yeah, we, I mean, we have investors for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, we also just, we made sure that we were working on, you know, on a very local level. So like all of our investors are people who actually come to the bar and hang out, you know, and, you know, we've got some, some really, really fun. Like, in fact, actually one of the investors, uh, is, uh, an art dealer, and that's where like most of the artwork comes from. So part of part of his investment, uh, outside of the cash investment, was actually like supplying us with art. And the cool thing is, we can rotate it out with his collection, like whenever we feel like it. But some of those pieces, for instance, uh, the Mister ET that's over the fireplace, which has become iconic for Grand Army, um, <laughs> that that is kind of like permanently uh, on loan there. Like we we. At one point, he came by to swap it out for something else, uh, and everyone, it was just jarring. We are like, that doesn't work. In uh, the, uh, the, Andrew Jeffrey Wright is the artist's name, and that's the original. And people, uh, there, there was, at one point, someone tried to, like, grab it off the wall and, like, run out with it. Um, <laughs> we, we've, we've had really strange art theft. Uh, in Grand Army, like for instance, people will steal. So right now, the toilet. We got to talk about the the restroom because um, it's like the greatest nightclub in Brooklyn. Um, so uh, the it's a dark restroom with uh, mirrored ceilings. There's like a crazy like laser disco ball in there. Um, there's artwork all over the place by a uh, a guy named uh, uh, Archangel. Uh, sorry, no, no, that's that's on the up the south wall in the in the restroom. There's we have like six of these. Uh, it's uh, Chippendale, they Chippendale, and so um, they're like these collage things, and you know, there's like mushrooms and like all this crazy stuff. And uh, then there's all when we did our uh, our cat menu, we had this artist come by, and he still comes by occasionally. All the bad cats. And so people could bring in like photos of their pet or just, you know, iPhone, you know, pictures or whatever and get illustrations done of their pets. And so we had all the staff uh, had their cats illustrated and then we framed them, put them up in the bathroom, in the restroom. And one of those was Lewis, uh, which is Brad Thomas Parsons cat and which unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And he's still very, we're all still very upset about that. Um, but someone stole it and 
And I don't know if they were a Brad Thomas Parsons fan or if they just like, maybe they had a cat named Lewis too, or I, I don't know, but I was like, stop. Like, first of all, don't steal stuff. But, you know, that's not even the worst thing that's happened there. Right now, uh, the toilet seat is like kind of this Garfield proxy uh, that someone painted. Um, it's really, <laughs> it's a really awesome toilet seat. But the thing is, in the past, we've had holographic toilet seats of like howling wolves and like unicorns and like, the toilet seat's always been like a, a really interesting feature. There's only one restroom in Grand Army for those listeners. Uh, so it's it's a pretty wild place in there. Um, anyway, someone stole the toilet seat uh, <laughs> off of the toilet one winter, our first winter, uh, like a, a little almost a year in uh, to being open. They just straight up stole the toilet seat because there was this holographic unicorn, uh, lenticular technically. Uh, so like whenever you move, it would like... You know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> anyway, and it's just like, like, you know, there's that old saying, like, people will steal anything that's not bolted down. That was literally, it was bolted down. <laughs> and also, it was like a busy Saturday night. People have been pissing all over it, you know, and like, someone actually they come with like a it. power drill or something. <laughs> I don't know. They must have, like, I have no idea. But it, like, it, the worst part is, I'm assuming that they put it in their coat. And we're like hugging. It was up because it's like just really gnarly. Anyway, so the, the, the but yeah, it kind of to go back to what we're talking about like this, the artwork in there is like a big part of it. And you know that that investor, uh, we're really happy to have him. Uh, it's you know, it, there's also really and speaking of that, like there's other really cool neighbors that we have, like that I become friends with, like celebrity neighbors, like. Daniel Kessler, uh, who's the guitar player from Interpol, lives on the corner. Uh, Joaquin Simo lives on the corner, uh, owner of Point Ribbons and, you know, formerly of Death and Company. Uh, before that, um, uh, the actor that plays the, the, on the show, uh, Felicity, remember that show? Um, <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, uh, she, uh, she's in the neighborhood. Um Geez, there's just like too many to name. Dan Gold, who's like a, an act, he's actually one of our investors. Um, yeah, so it's just a really cool neighborhood to be in, and I think it serves it well. You know, in fact, during the pandemic, we we stayed. You know, we would we're on a corner, so uh, luckily, what was happening on those two streets, State Street, which is like the kind of like more like neighborhoody street, um, that was like shut down through the pandemic, and then Hoyt Street. They would shut that down on certain weekends. So both of our streets on that corner would be shut down sometimes on the weekend. And we'd throw these big block parties. And, you know, even when we weren't doing that during the week, we would have, you know, we would sell like Negronis to go to Gronies um, and, you know, other things like everyone wants a spicy margarita, you know. So we, what we've always done is like we always have a spicy margarita on the menu. But we started doing this thing where there is something like. 300 different types of mole at least historically traditionally and yeah so what we started doing is we're like well we're just gonna to to make this interesting and to continue with our you know quarterly seasonal menu changes is that we'll just do a different mole featured uh margarita and so you know when everyone else is just doing your kind of standardized uh spicy margarita where we're doing our unique one and so 
the cool thing was is like we had something different, you know, like little bottled hard starts and whatnot. And so people would come by and grab stuff more regularly than they would at other places. And that was the real trick with that pandemic. It was like you can't sell a, like a gallon of margarita and then like expect people to come by tomorrow and buy a gallon of margaritas. People were coming by with more frequency, but also just our neighbors were just so cool. They would just like walk by and throw a 20 in the tip jar without buying anything. They were just like they were just so supportive of us. Because we're their neighborhood spot, and there's really nothing like us, or like even close to like a, a cocktail bar, uh, or restaurant, anywhere that close. Shockingly enough, in New York City, nothing that close to Grand Army. So and it's close to everything, but it's also kind of isolated in its own very neighborhoody way. Yeah, you've got like so, what ten block radius. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, you know, when you get, we one block away is Atlantic Avenue, right? And there's tons of restaurants and bars, but it's just that one short block of separation that's mm-hmm. that's almost like escapism in a lot of ways from the hustle and bustle. And then you go one block north, and you're in industrial downtown Brooklyn. So it's just this really special street. State Street's really special, uh, and 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 very neighborhoody and very green, and it's quiet too which is great, you know, and that's not something you don't really get a lot of in New York City. Well, more than a decade on from, like, owning a bar, uh, how is it um, commercially? Like, is are the loans paid off? Is it a profitable place now? I mean, it's been it's been profitable for a few years. Um, as far as, like, the, the business of the business goes, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone saw, you know, unfortunately, we did see a lot of our friends' spots go down during the pandemic. We were lucky enough to have enough money in the bank uh, and enough enough reported income with the government to be able to get you know some some of the relief funds that were happening and being mm-hmm. dispersed during the pandemic. So there were certain places that just uh, I it, it it was one thing to see like the newer spots that didn't have enough reported income to like be able to apply and receive. PPP loans or SBA loans. But then seeing places like the 21 Club. Yeah. Well, it was on a shaky yeah, I, basis anyway. It's, it's, I think Warren Buffett had a saying that, you know, events like COVID or, you know, financial crashes, it's like the tide going out. You see who's wearing pants and who's naked. Yeah. It was a lot of places <laughs> that had a lot of structural problems. They were just chugging along. It's kind of like, with the smoking ban, so many places closed because of that. And as the smoking ban went all around the world, you realize like, oh my God, this place was just like barely getting by and they couldn't survive a five or a 10% drop in business. So it was right. a, bru- a brutal call of the herd. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, like I said, luckily we have uh, a unique position where we are, we are the neighborhood bar and and luckily, it's not like a dive bar or a pub where it's like you've got regulars who are coming in expecting like every other drink as a buyback, you know, like, you know, people actually come in. What a crazy concept to order a drink or or a dish and then expect to pay for it. You know, like I, I don't I would never order anything that I didn't expect to pay for or have the money to pay for. Right. And so I think the concept of the buyback is something that it should be a buyback. It's not like comp. So it, for any of the business owners out there or bartenders or anyone who wants to open up a spot, it's like you don't you don't give people free things 
that they ordered, you give them extra. And really a lot of that comes down to like, you know, for us, it's like in the industry, there's a lot of different, uh, like as a bar manager or buyer, um, there's a lot of things you can do to like work out deals with, and it's state by state. I should say that. Um, but you know, work out deals with different spirits companies, uh, to where it's like, okay, well, if you buy five cases of this, you get one for free or whatever kind of flex deal with distribution or sales, you know, uh, you know, there's, for instance, you know, like we can, we can say like, uh, you know, if we do a, a martini Monday and we get like five cases of orange gin and, and you know, one of them uh, was comped because we, we bought for it. And like, I, I, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. Um, I can't even tell you frontline pricing on any of that stuff right now. But the thing is, you know, that allows us to be able to be like, Hey, you know what? We got a free case of gin so we can make like, you know, tiny gimlet shots and give those to people as like a, a thank you, you know, and a, a plus up, you know, going back to like what I was saying about Jeff Galley and like with hospitality, you know, it's like Jeff would always do something. And he, I know he definitely does. I've, I can't wait to go to the spot in Montana. Um, but he would just do like simple little things, you know, like, you know, the, the whole like I concept of like bar nuts has been gone for a long time because it's like cross contamination. It's kind of gross. You know, it's like you can't really like police that situation on the DOH uh, Department of Health kind of front. Um, but Jeff would like. He would go back to the kitchen and grab like a pickle for someone. You know, it was like, hey, here's a pickle. Or, you know, we had like something I learned from Phil Ward uh, back uh, at uh, my well. I went in there one time and, you know, he's making drinks for people and he took a, a cucumber, just a cucumber that, you know, was used for garnishes uh, that he had at the bar. And he sliced it up. I think I was with Thomas Wall, actually. Um, he sliced up a whole cucumber, dressed it with lime, salt and pepper. These are all things that he had right there. It's garnish. I think it was like tahini, you know, uh, spicy uh, salt. And then he like plated it really beautifully and then put it in front of us as a snack. That was already comped. Like it, it was already, you know, it was already accounted for, for garnishes for these cocktails. But then he made us, a, he made us food, you know, and like we didn't order it. It wasn't like something that was even on the menu. It was just out of the kindness. And for Phil Ward, for those people who know Phil Ward, out of the kindness of his heart is kind of a, a stretch, right? To say something like that. But uh, anyway, he did it. And it was like, and it, it blew me away. I was just like, it's like, that was just like so nice. That's that's hospitality, right? So like things like that. And I was like, well, you know, he didn't give me a copita of mezcal. He gave me some cucumbers. And, and you know, gave us some cucumbers, and then we did have a copita. But the thing is, we paid for everything, and we tipped very well. You know, obviously, but those little steps of service are just like that are off the book. Uh, you know, like out of the playbook. You know, that to me, that's that. Those are the exciting things. Well, they're more valuable. Like I had been in America a very long time before I went to a bar that had like buybacks baked in, yeah. whereby right. you know every third round is a freebie. You know, dive bars, neighborhood bars. But I was actually in a bar for the first time in many, many years recently that was like that. I was up in uh, Sunnyside in Queens. Long story. And <laughs> our friend that we were kind of visiting, it was her neighborhood. Uh, she said, oh, let's go to this Irish bar. Now, normally, 
I have no business in an Irish bar because I'm I'm maxed out. I'm 100% Irish. I can't get any more. So I don't need to go to the Irish bar to be Irish. Any bar I walk into is an Irish bar. Technically. <laughs> right. Anyway, we go there. And it was a really, really lovely place and very, very busy. It was like a Friday or a Saturday night. <laughs> and uh, My friend had actually never been there. Me and Elaine had never been there. We didn't know anybody. And it certainly wasn't a place that would, you know, recognize me or Elaine or indeed the person we were with as being from the industry. But uh, at the end of the night, I paid the tab, didn't really think very much about it. And I filed the receipt the other day and every third drink was a ball bag. No one told me. I, you know, I hadn't really looked at it. I certainly didn't expect it. And this was a big bustling, lively neighborhood place. It wasn't like a ratty little corner bar that looks like the uh, the F&B outlet for a meth clinic. This was, you know, <laughs> a, a nice place. And there was just nobody even said, hey, buddy, this one's on me. That would have been nice. You know, a little bit of dream weaving, a little bit of uh, cucumber slicing, as I will call it. Uh, sure. Forward. <laughs> yeah, but it's, do you know what it is? It's not about the thing. It's about knowing that the other person thought about you as a person. Right. You know, and you, whether they're in front of you or you're at a table, that's why I did a lot of training on cruise ships. I trained uh, about 14 cruise ships bartenders, which meant I had to fly around the Caribbean, rough gig. And yeah. <laughs> the problem with it in almost every case is wherever a cruise ship docks on a beautiful paradise like island, that cruise ship dock area becomes the shittiest part of the whole island. And it becomes populated with shitty gift shops and shitty bars and restaurants. And you could run naked through a bar or restaurant. They wouldn't give a shit. You're not a human being to those people. You are just, they're, they're not expecting you to be a regular. Right. They're, they're, you, you are just there to be milked, much like in Vegas. You know? Right. For sure. And if somebody yeah. does something like what Phil Ward does, uh, unintentionally or intentionally, they're like, I see you. And the ultimate is, of course, the 11 Madison Park dream weaving where they Google you and the gesture that they do is personal to you. Like Eduardo at the Four Seasons in Florence who had those little shots of Jameson and, and Guinness totally. for, for the Irish guy and something English for the English guy and something German for the German guy. That's like, I see you as a person, which is all most of us ever want yeah absolutely i mean to me it's it's so so easy to do that these days too i mean you just take out your phone and quick google search and it's 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 you're done like that's that is if you can't do that for every reservation on the books like you take five minutes of your day and you know, like I'm, I'm telling, I'm just saying this to everyone out there, like who owns a bar or runs one or a restaurant or hotel. It's like, it doesn't take that much time these days. Can you imagine trying to do that 50 years ago? I mean, like at the, you know, it's Savoy or something like that, you know, like, well, they actually I, used I, to I, do it. Did you know that? Not Google. Did they, did they travel through time? <laughs> no. Um, uh, I think it's still there. If you walk into the American bar, on the left, there's a space that they've converted into a miniature museum. Because back then, what we now call uh, CRM, Customer Relationship Management, right. was, you know, the maitre d', who was almost certainly French or Italian. And, you know, 
he, it was usually he, had been there forever and knew everybody. And they would file away regular guests' preferences on a Rolodex. Oh, sure. It would be like, oh, well, when, you know, Mrs. Rothschild comes, uh, send a bottle of pink champagne up to her room, and she enjoys her Gibson martini with two onions, not one. Uh, right. That, that and they, was... they like they like room 1308 because it's got yeah. the view of the park or, you know, like that, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, the, what I'm saying is, like, yes, and that to me is, like, I, yeah, I mean, like Grand Budapest Hotel, like there's a lot of that kind of activity, right? At the, at the Ritz in Paris, apparently, uh, if you stay more than once, your room will always be made up by the same uh, housekeeper. Really? Wow. Apparently. That... <laughs> I don't know wow. why. I don't know if there's something weird going on with the housekeepers, but uh, it's, again, how you do anything. It's discretion. <laughs> yeah. How you do anything is how you do everything. Right. So, I mean, but what I'm saying is, like, with that laborious task of, like, keeping tabs on your regular guests, I'm talking about, like, someone makes a reservation for the first time. Like, how easy is it to, like, do a 30-second Google search on them? And, like, oh, so they they live in uh, San Jose and they work in tech. And, like, the, you know, the, it looks like they like to surf. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, maybe they like tiki drinks. I don't know. You know, something like that. You know, just, like... It's just quick and easy and just like, and it only takes one little thing, one. And then you just open up, it opens up the whole conversation and really the relationship, you know? Yeah. And that's, to me, that's, that's the important part. That's the special part of it. It's just like taking that extra, just not even that much time, just like a couple of seconds to learn something about this person. Well, let's, and, let's flip it around. Let me yeah. be the uh the attorney for the prosecution instead of for the defense <laughs> this is a conversation i've had with again robert simonson on more than one occasion and uh he's actually written an article about it it you know in the beginning the idea of reservations at a bar were ridiculous right there's was, there was no reservations at a bar and uh, Milk and Honey changed that because it was such a small place and people right. wanted to know they could get in. And when I opened my bar, also in 2008, we had reservations because I thought, well, it's a lovely thing to know, even on a Saturday night, they have a spot for you. You're going to be able to sit down. Uh, you're not going to have to fight your way through 900 people to get the attention. There will be as many people in that bar as the bartenders can make good drinks within a reasonable period for. That's a lovely thing. And you can you still have the option to not make a reservation. Of course you do. It's now right. escalated to the stage where, uh, certainly in New York, and I suspect this will happen in other places as well, you can't have an anonymous drink in a bar. You can't just walk in, unchallenge a nice bar, and... and have a drink and pay cash. Because what happens is, first of all, you'll walk in, there's usually a host stand, and you'll point to the bar and say, oh, I want to go to the bar. And they'll say, oh, uh, do you have a reservation? You say, no. I say, oh, well, and there's like nobody in the bar. And they'll go, oh, well, the bar is that way. It's like, oh, the bar I'm pointing at, thank you. And then you go up there and sit down. And very often, and this is something that grew up out of COVID, everybody started taking reservations with Resi, because they had to for, you know, physical spacing and stuff. Somebody will come right. along and say, oh, can I just get a phone number from you? So you have to give them your phone number. It's it's kind of impolite if you don't. For tracking. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, Mr. Duff, welcome back. Or if not, 
you're in the system. Sure. So and the idea I, I get... of a romantic, nihilistic, I you know, I know nobody. I come here and I drink. Maybe I talk to the bartender, maybe not. I pay cash and I leave. That's going out the window. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of like uh foil hat kind of uh, wearing people out there who are like you know, paranoid about being tracked. I mean, we're all look like we're tracking ourselves. Like we're carrying our own tracking devices. We're, and, paying, you know, I, we're paying. We're paying for our track. tracking device. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a deer that chips itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I find it flattering actually that someone would want to track me. <laughs> Um, no, uh, you know, the, okay, so me, me and Robert are gonna get burner phones, we're going for yeah. breaking bad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna invent an entire other personality, it'll be like Len Tasso <laughs> from Ted Lasso, you know, when he turns into an asshole, <laughs> like this other, like we'll, we'll call him Dillip Puff or something. He's gonna be a <laughs> dick, <laughs> he's he's got like a 1099 flip phone from Costco. That's amazing. All right, look, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed. You know, I honestly, the flip phone thing to me, the greatest part of that is just from getting away from screens, you know. But I mean, but going back to the bar thing, it's like in, in the tracking, I, I don't see the problem with being in the system for a place that's great. You know what I mean? Like, I, like if, and I try not to go anywhere just to go to a place. Like, I, you know, the, I I love being able to, especially okay. So Jamie and I went on our our honeymoon back in uh, May, and we went to we were in Zurich, Santorini, Firenze, Saint Sebastian, Paris, and back. In that situation, had we not made reservations, we would have just been wandering around lost like most of the time right we didn't we didn't make everything we we were staying in palazzo vecchio like that area of front end and like you know the downstairs from our airbnb was the gucci bar so like and the cool thing is like gucci garden we're just yeah and we went to the gucci garden as well uh and i think i bought these glasses there um <laughs> but the uh the thing is there's i wouldn't have wanted to take my my brand new bride on a honeymoon and this is supposed to be like one of the greatest trips of her life, right? And then to go up to all these places, just like blindly trying to get in and not having the guarantee of being able to sit and have a dinner or food, like that would have been, I would, that it would have been really bad. That's all I'm saying. But the thing is, like a casual, like, I don't think there's really anything too casual anymore, right? I mean, like, if, if it was going to like the, uh, like for instance like we were staying in uh like kind of west soho and the hotel that we were staying at it's right around the corner from year in i'm never i'm never going to make a reservation at year in i don't think they take them but you know what they'll always find so. you a seat they'll always find you a seat or you have the space uh, to stand at least but uh, that kind of takes me back to another thing too it's like if you have like a nice cocktail bar that you like okay i'll just kind of back up a little bit at grand army uh our original GM host was also hosting and she would just like let anyone in. And I just, and that bar gets so busy and I would be working point, you know, the very first person you see at the bar. And there were times I'd have to be like, stop letting people in. Like, what are you doing? Like, there's nothing worse than like sitting at a bar, like you and uh, Mrs. Duff, right. You're sitting at a bar 
and you're say it's a date night or whatever, you know, and you're you're having you know some cocktails and maybe some oysters or d'oeuvres, you know, and it's this romantic you know just moment for you sitting at the bar, and then you've got some guy that doesn't know, doesn't have social cues, and he gets between you with a hundred dollar bill and he's waving it up at the bartender trying to get a drink, you know, like fuck that. So like. To me, I, I'm all about reservations at a bar. And it's really about crowd control. And I, I'm willing to bet that most bartenders appreciate it. Well, I you know, think then, Robert's thing was not reservations at a bar per se. There's nothing wrong with that. It was you walk in, you can see the bar. There's space. Sure. And oh, there's say, space. Like, do, you, do you have a reservation? You say no. That should be the last interaction you have before saying I'll have a rye Manhattan, please. Right? Sure. And it's the whole thing that, like, somebody that then scuttles up with an iPad saying, can I just get your phone number? Right? <laughs> that happened to me. I went into a very famous bar that we won't name. It's Manhattan, right at opening time. <laughs> and obviously, I know, you know, people there, people in the group. It's an amazing, fantastic bar. Um, But I, I rolled in. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt there was nobody in that bar because there's kind of a, a waiting room downstairs and there was nobody in there either. So I knew the bar was empty unless they had some kind of a special event. And I said, oh, I no, just, just want to go to the bar. And like, oh, can I get your number? And I gave the number, right? I like that place. I, you know, but I should have the right to not. Sure. You know? I mean, did you ask though? Did I ask what? If the bar was empty or? No, no. Do you really need my number? <laughs> you know. Well, it's again when when you're going out, especially it's a nice place. We're all wearing the mask of "I'm a nice person," so you can yeah. send to things, you know. And I am a nice. I'm genuinely a nice person, or at least I try to appear like one. So this thing, I think, it's just brought customer relationship management uh, a little too far. So, okay, check this out. I, I recently, I was in line at a, a Safeway grocery store out here in, uh, in Marin County in California. And I was, uh, you know, they ask you for your phone number at the checkout. Because yeah. certain, certain, cert, well, certain uh, grocery stores, they they do this thing where it's like a loyalty program. And like, you know, uh, 1.75 of uh, Maker's Mark will be like, you know. $65, but it's actually $42, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, if you right, yeah, put yeah. your number and you're, you know, blah, 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 you know? So I was, uh, I was like, you know, uh, I was like, I don't think, cause I've been using my wife's phone number forever. Cause she's lived here forever. Right. Um, she has a loyalty card is what it is. Yeah. It's just like, you just type in your phone number on the, the right. pad where you like swipe your card. Right. And I was like, ah, uh, I was like, I, I was like, I don't know if I should put in her number or mine. And the guy that was in line, but my age, uh, and he was also buying, you know, a big bottle of whiskey. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, I trust, I trust this guy, you know, <laughs> um, he's buying a giant bottle of whiskey. He's economic and he looks like he can party. Um, anyway, he was like, yeah, just put in uh eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. His number. No, the song. Eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. Oh, very good. <laughs> So the the prefix here is uh, the area code is four one five. So he's like put in four one five eight six seven five three zero nine, and I was like, that's brilliant. And he's like, yeah. Guess what? And Jenny's the song Jenny eight six seven five three zero nine. He's like Jenny's got a lot of points with Safeway. 
<laughs> well, that's different. Said, that's that's loyalty cards. So they're harvesting your data with your consent, and you have the well, option yeah, but, to not do it. But, but what I'm saying is just give a different number if uh, you know. Well, and then get your, it's, it's and get your Manhattan. It's yeah, exactly. Phone. I mean, the next level of that is me and Robert will go in with our burner phones and give the numbers, and then like the G- GM will turn up, like gentlemen, there's a problem. You know, <laughs> like they've tried, they've looked and up you, the numbers, and it's like, are you guys on the run? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you jack Ryan your way out of that room. You just yeah. burst through the window with Mark Martini or Manhattan in hand. Yeah, we, <laughs> we we run like hell to McSorley's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They won't ask for your phone number there. <laughs> yeah. well, they only put it in the women's restroom in 1982, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> cell phones should kick in somewhere around 2040. I and, uh, we we went to uh, we went to Old Town Bar when we were there last week, and Jamie was like, "Where's the women's room?" I was like, "You have to go upstairs." Yeah, she was like, "What?" She's like, "Where the hell did you bring me?" She's like, "Can we go back to Keens?" Um, actually, we were we walked into Keens because I I owed her a uh, a steak at Keens because uh, when we went a few trips back, um, been pre COVID, um, she she had some work meetings and stuff and they lasted longer than expected. And so I was sitting at Keens for like three hours drinking Gibson's and, uh, and so eventually she shows up and um, we go sit down at the table and I've got this funny smirk on my face and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, I had ordered two gimlets because I thought that'd be easier than the the Gibson's that I've been drinking. Put some citrus in it. It'll take down the alcohol, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was like, I think it's too drunk to be here right now. I don't think I can have a mutton chop or anything. And anyway, she was like, you, you owe me a Keen's steakhouse, I uh, think. So we, my routine was always, uh, you know, when I live full time there, uh, every Monday, go to Keen's around 1230, one o'clock, uh, get a shrimp cocktail in a Boodle's Gin Gibson. Um, nice. I've always, it's the only place I really drink Boodle's Gin, uh, and it's always a Gibson. And then, uh, I'll get the surf and turf and, you know, some red wine. And then after that, you know, go hat shopping in a couple blocks away at JJ Hat Center or go go to the guitar stores and get in trouble there. Um, anyway, um, so that's what we did on Monday. We went there and we walk in and this is the magic of New York City. Um, and, you know, and it, it's like the smallest town, but it's also one of the largest cities. You know, it's like you can get anything you want there and anything can happen. Um but we walk in and I'm like, we, we made a reservation for one o'clock, um, gave our number. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was like, we got to sit in the bar room and one of the many bar rooms, but the main bar room. And so, you know, we walk in and it's like pretty empty in there, which is, I knew it was going to get busy soon, but we got there uh, like 12, 15 ish. We got there super early and Eyes are adjusting to the darkness, you know, and at the very far end of the bar, there's two gentlemen sitting there. And at the on the left side, uh, the farthest side, see this guy kind of poke his head out with white hair, Stel de Groff. And so uh, and, and so I'm like, of course, it's Del de Groff. And he's like, Damon. And he's like, what are you doing in town? I'm like, Dale, shit. All right, cool. And um, and he's sitting with uh, Philip Green. And I'm just like, you know. Speaking of Manhattans, right? Philip Green's uh, Manhattan book Manhattan is excellent, book and, and many other books. Yeah, and many other, and and it was Manhattan Week last week, uh, which I I hate to say this, but I was slightly unaware of. Uh, I was more concerned about just getting back to New York. Uh, it's mostly it an Angel's ch- Envy thing. They're trying to make it happen. 
Right, I know. It's not it's not quite at the Negroni week level yet, right? So um so yeah, and it, you know, he was like he was like, Can I buy you a, a DeGraff Negroni? And I'm like, well, yeah, um, let's do it. So then then they invited us to the uh, the Manhattan event they were having uh that last Monday at uh Eventy space. Um you know, this is the, the the magic of of New York City right there. But um you know, like the that's one of those places. Actually, I wanted to say that, like, I, you know, between Twenty One Club and Keen Steakhouse, I if I had to pick one to survive, it would be Keen's because I have, I have a lot more experience there. Not that you know I wanted to see Twenty One Club go, but uh, you know, Keen's is just a magical place. Well, and New York just, is. You, you don't need to be on any yeah. social network in New York. You just need to go to the bar. Yeah, that's true, and it'll lead you everywhere because, like, you know, like I said, you know. I wasn't planning on going to that event, but then all of a sudden we didn't even have plans for that Monday night. Jamie had an early work day uh, Tuesday and yeah. I was like, I don't know what we're going to do uh, Monday. And she was like, you're going to go to that Manhattan event. And then I did. And I ran into so many great friends, ended up uh, going to the ear in with, uh, uh, you know, Lincoln Chinnery and Amanda Schuster and like all these great fixtures in our, our community and in, uh, in New York city. So it's incredible. Well, let's switch topics, uh, although sure. staying on topic as well. You started uh, The Speakeasy. Is it the oldest running podcast about bars and cocktails? There it, might be older spirits ones, perhaps, but is there anyone else out there? There's there's one. Yeah, there's one called Whiskey, Whiskey Cast. It's been around just longer, but that's specific for whiskey. So uh, yeah, this is the longest the- running yeah. It's the longer yeah, the speakeasy is the longest running show that encompasses all drinks. I basically started in what year? 2010. Wow. So but let's go back to 2010. The world was different. Very, very sure. different then. Uh audio equipment was expensive. Uh, we didn't have Zoom and stuff like that. Why did you start a podcast? So here's the thing. I call it a radio show more than a podcast because I feel like people who have podcasts put more work in than I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, you know, you like think you're lazy. Of... You haven't seen this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like, you know, when it comes to podcasts, a lot of people, they they're well produced. They pipe in music and different, you know, like they, they edit segments in and out and they've got, you clips. know, this, they've got clips, you know, correspondence from, yeah. Anyway, um, the speaking is always meant to be just a straight across the bar interview. And really that's what it means. It's, it's, it's bar talk. We just happen to have microphones in front of us. In fact, that's what I've always said with guests who come on. Like, it's the same conversation style that we always have. You know, maybe it's, you know, 4 a.m. Uh, or maybe it's pre-shift or maybe it's during the shift. I don't know. Um, but it's just like we, the only difference is we have microphones in front of us. So really the way it started was uh, Heritage Radio Network started in 2009. Patrick Martin started it. Patrick Martin was one of the co-founders of Slow Food USA. And he started a company called Heritage Foods USA. And his whole idea with that was working with small, like, responsible farmers and restaurants like, say, 11 Madison Park, as you mentioned before. Um, and just making sure that everyone was doing things uh, responsibly and, and you know, doing, doing things the right way, basically. But he secretly always wanted to have his own radio show, uh, you know, a sports show and and maybe a food show. And he was like, you know what? No one's ever going to hire me. He's like, I'm just going to start a radio station. And so he did. And he started uh, Heritage Radio Network. 
And it started, it was mostly like farmers and chefs and like, you know, really, really amazingly, like, you know, like, you know, Dave Arnold's been on the station since the beginning. Uh, his show is called Cooking Issues. And, you know, um, it, but, you know, like Jimmy uh, Carboni's got his show, Beer Sessions. Um, Joe Campanelli, you know, very well-known uh, restaurateur in New York City. I actually had uh, dinner at his newest spot called Fausto down in Flat, uh, Flatbush. Excellent. Um, anyway, uh, it was all these cooking shows. And, you know, Joe Campanelli would do an occasional wine series. Um, but there was nothing on, like, booze. And so... Patrick Martin would come into prime meats all the time and he would be like, Hey, come on. What are you doing? Like you should come on the radio show sometime. And I was like, ah, like, uh, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> like, I was just kind of like, ah, I just kind of, I didn't really care too much about it. Um, although I had worked in radio a little bit locally and in, in back in Oklahoma city. Um, so I, he, you know, he, he was like, you should come on. Like I've got the show called the main course. It was like the main show on station. Right. And uh, he and Katie Kiefer, and you know, he tricked me one day. He was like, "Hey, what are you doing this Sunday? You want to hang out?" I was like, "Yeah, sure, man. Let's hang out." He's like, "Cool, you're gonna be on the radio." I'm like, "Oh, you fucking asshole." Um, anyway, so so I got, I went on the show. I brought my uh, my gold cocktail kingdom shaker. You know, nice. not not that you could see it on air, you know, or anything like that. It was a radio show. Uh, I, but I made some cocktails. It happened to be, it, it, luckily enough, it was December fifth, which is in the United States it's repeal day so uh, there was plenty to talk about and so the thing is they they hit me up like a couple weeks later and they were like they're like dude we actually got crazy like it was we'd go back and like do the like come like check back in but we had the craziest ratings for your episode and so we don't have I think it was because of all the cocktail stuff which is something we don't have and Patrick was like, would, would you like to have your own radio show on the station? And I was like, hmm, how much does it pay? And he said, nothing. And I said, perfect, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> so, well, and the reason why, you got to understand, like, you know, and we've had plenty of sponsors throughout the years. Uh, but in the beginning, I was like, I want this to be a non-biased uh, show. And also want to go by the gold rule. Like, if, uh, if I... If there's something I don't like about the guest or the company that they represent or whatever, it's like then we just we won't have them on the show or I won't have them on the show. I started it solo, well, you know, obviously with the help of Jack Inslee, who's the producer and engineer. But um, you know, eventually it got to the point where I didn't have to seek out guests after it started getting traction, started getting press, started winning awards. You know, PR companies started reaching out to me and pitching guests. And so these days it's really like it's it's a lot of the work is done by the like PR companies, uh, which is great for me because uh, then I can just pick and choose who I want to have on the show. Um, but, you know, there are some 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 guests and companies that have been on since that have gone on to it's kind of like it's was a springboard for them to get into like a media uh, situation. But, yeah, back when I was doing it, there was. Back when I started, there like no one was, no one was doing it. And did you listen to podcasts yourself? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of them were about music, uh, music and motorcycles, basically. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and dorky things like you know, 
watches and you know that kind of stuff so I, yeah but like to me like I, it i never wanted to do it I, I didn't want to be just scripting out my own stuff i again like it kind of like it became more of like a promotional piece for the guest on the show right so like you know even though i talk a lot it's like it it's more like steering the guest uh, into like you know having kind of a, a set of like bullet points that we want to hit um you know if it's you know something like you know like the aforementioned uh, repeal day it's like okay well we need to talk about that a week or two prior so the less so that's another part of it too is like you know being a live radio show um which it was before now we pre-tape about you know by a couple of hours because uh, we were doing it remotely i'm in california Southern and Greg are in New York, so we kind of have to do it that way. Um, but the the thing about that is like just kind of getting ahead of the calendar and making sure that you can actually promote the things that need to be promoted, book releases, uh, different holidays, bar openings, you know, that kind of thing. Do you plan yeah, tests it's, a bit or do you wait for uh, PR companies to reach out or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we just want to make sure that the content is timely because even though, you know, it used to be live and we had a lot of people who would tune in live. Um, and, and that's why I say it's a radio show because we were actually doing it live. You know, a podcast is usually pre-recorded and edited, but uh, we still kind of keep that liveness to it. Um, but it's, uh, it's definitely one of those things where a lot of listeners will they'll wait till they get on the subway or, you know, wait till later to, you know, they'll listen to it at their leisure, you know? Yeah. Are you still getting paid the same salary? Yeah, exactly. Excellent. It hasn't like increased with uh, inflation over the years. Uh, (laughs) Zero to zero point three (laughs) percent. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, the the perks are, it's not monetary. I'll take occasionally we'll get, you know, if we do have a sponsor that wants to do something with us, like Southern Night did something with the Sexton Irish whiskey uh, years back. And, you know, we did some, we did a big party with them at Roberta's where the station is. And, you know, they, they paid for that and for us. And, you know, and then we've done other things with like Diageo in the, in the past. Uh, we're no longer working with Diageo. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there is some monetary gain, but really the perks come from like, like you mentioned before, like press trips, um, kind of media perks. Uh, you know, I get free books and free booze shipped to the house every week. Pretty good so deal. pretty good deal. Yeah. So it's, and you know, and it's, it's kind of cool. Like I've gone to, I've been sitting in like an airport bar and, you know, just talking with the bartender and they recognize my voice and they're like, Hey, Oh, it's gonna sound weird. But are you Damon? You have a show called The Speakeasy? I'm like, yeah. It's like, oh my God, I listen to it. I'm like, cool. And like, yeah, I don't really get to do the kinds of things that you talk about here at this airport bar, but I I learn and you know, like from like more on the hospitality side. So it's interesting, you know. And there was a, you know, there's one listener in uh uh Zaire. We get we get like the metrics from uh, yeah. uh, this this guy uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, it shows us like all the people who tune in from like every country in the world. Uh, and there's always been like for years now, like ten years, there's like one listener in Zaire, <laughs> and Shout I'm like, I was I, I was on a yeah totally, and I, I like I, I tried to meet up with them um, 
it, I shouted him out on uh, a few episodes leading up to my trip to South Africa. And uh, I was like, okay, if, if we can meet up somewhere. I, I'm going to be in Joburg and Cape Town. Like, if it's possible, like, I would love to meet you. I don't know if we can, but I'm putting it out there, you know. So oh, anyway, it's an extended podcast episode where you travel around Africa, meeting all yeah, the single yeah. listeners in each uh, in each country. Oh my gosh! And a, like an old Land Rover Defender, like on safari, you know, cocktail safari. Yeah, yeah sign so me up. Sponsors, <laughs> re- reach out to the Philip Dove Show. We'll make it happen. I'll be going to South Africa myself later on. Uh, oh, nice. Later on, they've got a great beverage show in November. Believe it or not, being run by my friend. Uh, Kurt Schlechter. So you've been out of New York now for how long? Been about five years. Five years. Now, I know you come back frequently, but if you could cast your mind back to when you left and, you know, your most recent visit, what are the big changes you've seen in bars and bartending? Well, I mentioned before, like, it seems like staffs have really toned down i mean i went into clover club and i was kind of surprised that like a couple of the servers were wearing just like you know like t-shirts um you know i feel like everything's gotten a little bit more casual in the elevated space and then like vice versa you like the kind of kind of lower tiered spots people are trying to get fancier right and so yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, and not necessarily fancier, but like, um, um, for instance, uh, I was talking with this guy, uh, Ian, uh, at Ear Inn, our, our last night there, which was uh, Wednesday. Um, uh, he's a new bartender there. He said he's been there for about a year now, and I was like, "So where were you before here?" And for those people who don't know, Ear Inn is the I think it's the second or third oldest bar in New York City, and it's a it's kind of a dive, but it's beautiful and it's funny because they they actually put white tablecloths on uh, the tables when it's dinner time, uh, but otherwise it's a it's a total neighborhood dive bar, and uh, yeah. So I'm talking with Ian. I'm like, so where where'd you work before this? And it's funny that you would mentioned this before uh, a couple of times, but he was like, yeah, I was a bartender at Eleven Minutes Apart. I like I'm like well, we went from 11 Madison Park to here and he's like dude he's like I'm never leaving this place I'm like yeah I don't think anyone here does uh unless you die and apparently that's what happened so uh he, he was able to get a couple shifts and then some some more opened up and uh, yeah he was like I, he's like I'm gonna be here for the rest of my career I'm like wow that's cool so you know and like for him I was watching him work he was, he was in the service well, making drinks for the floor. And uh, I was watching him make, you know, martinis the right way. And it was like, it's like, you know, he was stirring them. He was, he was, you could tell that he, he, it was a, a, like a craftsman. Right. And he was putting all the care. Um, he, he said that uh, he had brought in like uh, some olives that he really liked some Castellatronos that, he was like these you know they were using the pimento stuffed ones and blah 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 and he was like yeah he's like i just like brought these in and i told him i was like you know these don't really cost much more than the ones that we have now and he's like rather than putting three or four of these tiny ones on a toothpick he's like you can put like one or two of these on it's actually going to save us money and it's going to elevate the process and they're like well yeah sure whatever well, you, you know, say let's do it 
you, you know he's he's there for life the next time you go to the air inn and there's like a martini trolley going around the tables. <laughs> Duke style. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. Have you noticed the uh, insane price rises in the price of drinks in New York, the food? Um, so I have this issue. I don't know if I've told you about this before, but um, it's a it's a it's something that happens in my right eye when I look at a menu. Uh, it goes blurry on the right side where the prices are. I only read the left side where the right. ingredients are. <laughs> so... But yeah, I, like I, you know, that's what going back to what we were talking about before. I I would never order anything without intending to pay for it, right? And I, I did notice some some price changes, but I also noticed. I don't know. Have you noticed this? Um, quite a few more establishments are doing the gratuity included thing. Mm, like to where I, you know, I wouldn't it, have said that actually. Go on, I'm interested to hear this. Yeah, it's rolled into the price. It's like you know how uh, Union Square Hospitality Group they're starting to do uh, like gratuity free. It's rolled into the price of all the the dishes and the cocktails and stuff. And I, I like that. And I know there's arguments. I know Souther and uh, Nick Bennett have gone back and forth uh, famously uh, in public, like on social media. Uh, you know, and he was even on the show one time to battle it out uh so there's totally against it um nick really likes it um nick says he likes the consistency of uh just knowing that if you're working at a busy place you're gonna make money right and with souther you know he says that you know he's got certain people who come in and you know his whole thing is hospitality uh you know it's all everyone's thing but he wants the the compensation for hospitality to be consistent with uh, you know or you know apply to what he did to go above and beyond right so if someone comes in and orders an eight amaro sazerac at amori margo and he like blows someone's mind with it and you know the cocktail is 17 dollars or whatever it is now and you know someone throws out a 20 dollar tip on top of it you know something like that you know whereas with nick he's like he's like yeah but like it takes the it takes some of that extra grind and hustle out of it because you're just he said the workplace environment uh, situation like just the emotional situation everyone seems to be more relaxed because they're not like it, it goes both ways like they're not worried about not getting tipped well because they're already getting tipped it's so there's more one. of a casual yeah it's, it's sort of like <clears throat> gun control and healthcare right. in america i mean we might as well throw in trans rights if we're going to touch the third rail of everything but with gun <laughs> control and healthcare, we all know that it would be better if you had things in let's say the way that they do gun control in japan or europe or healthcare like in the netherlands but you can't just fix the plane as you fly it unfortunately you know we're kind of sad right. with a lot of stuff that we have here in america and tipping's one and like globally globally nationally across the usa um all these surveys are repeated every single time uh, they've been repeated every year for 30, 40 years now. People say that they tip more for uh, good service and less for bad, and they don't. They tend to tip pretty much identically, right? Yeah. Um, however, you can't have an honest conversation about tipping in this country. You certainly can't have it in a public forum. You can't say this is too much or that's too much because people say, oh, what, do you hate restaurant staff? Da, 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 all this, because... You know, when I 
you started going out and about and working, 10% was a good tip if you got a tip at all. And if you worked in a place where tips were expensive, 10% was great. And every now and then you'd be, you know, you'd be palmed a bill and it could be a 10 or a 20 or whatever it might be. And then visiting New York for the first time a long time ago, 15% was a good tip. You know, right. 15% was a tip. And over the years, I noticed it creeping up. And a friend of mine, Tobin Ellis, oh God, I'll have to look up how long ago he wrote this. It might be 20 years. It might actually be 20 years ago. But he wrote a book. He was living in Las Vegas at the time. 20 ways to make 20%. Right? And 20% was like, if you got a 20% tip in the US then, you, you'd you like hug the guy. You'd run down the street to feed quarters into his parking meter and send him a card every year at Christmas. 20% was like, whoa. You know? And now, you know, if you go by what people say and, and media and all like that, that it's the bare minimum. Sure. Right. Yeah. So that all feeds into it. And the argument for tipping included is if you step out of the fancy cocktail bar world, having to work for tips and live on tips and, you know, not know if you're going to make 50 bucks on a shift or 600 uh, is stressful. It leads to it, or rather, it deepens. I'm going to sound very woke here, but it deepens existing inequities, right? And it leaves you with moral dilemmas that you shouldn't have to face as a as a server or a bartender. Like, okay, um, this table just used a not not even a slur, an inappropriate term to refer to me. Can I speak to them, or or am I? You know, does that mean I'm going to have served this table of ten people all night for nothing? Right, which wouldn't be an issue in a place. So it's a hard one to fix. And yeah. I am surprised what you said, because most um, places, certainly in New York, that tried the service included, hospitality included thing, have rolled it back. Yeah, I, it was it, it was certainly shocking to me. I mean, and but also I've been I've actually been noticing a lot more in San Francisco as well. That I, that um, I get. Yeah. But, you know, it's whatever works, works, you know, and it's going to be different everywhere. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to be. We're certainly not going to solve it in the next few minutes, you know, on the no, show. I... but <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I think the main thing was, you know, you know, the main difference that we saw, uh, you know, it, over, you know, like the last couple of years since going there previously, um, it was just the. It, it seems like things are kind of like balancing out and leveling out, you know, like I said, you know, like the fancier places are getting a bit more casual. And I think with places like, you know, uh, Super Bueno and Katana Kitten and, you know, Grand Army for sure, you know, it's like we've, we've established ourselves as professionals that know how to make kick-ass drinks and, and, you know, like show you a great time and great hospitality. Now, you know, and we don't have to wear ties invest anymore if we want to we can but you know it's not a, it's not a required situation i and you know to me the fact that i can go anywhere and get a proper cocktail um these days is just like, like a place like ear in you know like being able to go to ear in and order a proper martini not to say that previously that wasn't available it's just that um now it's it's what a crazy time to be alive you know in in our industry and just as a consumer i don't know i'm I'm just like i'm 
I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm proud of us. <laughs> I'm proud of where we, where, like, you know, all of us, like, we, you know, like, and that, I'm, I'm not just saying us in the industry, I'm proud of us as consumers to, like, get with, you know, the times and, like, understand that, like, quality is more important than quantity and just, efficient, uh, uh, you know, one of the major moments that I had uh, in New York this past visit was going to that Mar- uh, the Manhattan event at the Eventy Space uh, on Monday and seeing so many people there that were like just fresh into the industry like barbacks but I, I could tell like I, I could tell that they were working in a great spot and they were passionate and I was like this is someone to watch, you know, and then seeing them at that Manhattan event and just like kind of catching up with them, give big hugs and be like, where are you at now? And they're like, oh, I'm the head bartender. This, I'm like, oh my God, good for you. You know, so like that's, you know, with a little extra time, you know, seeing what's happening and, you know, we can't all be like, I, I know myself personally that like, you know, I don't need any more media attention and I'm not trying, I'm not saying that it's like a braggy person. I'm just saying like, and I'm not saying that I don't appreciate it from different like magazines and, and people asking for like, you know, book contributions and whatnot. It's like, there's so much talent out there. People are doing things way cooler than what I've done in my career, like in the glass, you know? Um, and so I'm like, stop focusing on like, stop asking me the old, the old guy. (laughs) Like it doesn't even work behind the stick anymore. I mean, like I'm still very much involved in this industry. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not making the drinks anymore. Uh, you know, and talk to the people who are, there's some really, really interesting characters out there and they have tons of, and that's, I will say this, uh, you know, we've got like, we're probably at time here. Um, and my wife's like about to get on a meeting. So she's like, all right, exactly. Get off the, she's like, get off the internet. Um, so, um, uh, we can edit that in post. Um, but nothing, uh, nothing gets edited in this. Show. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I just, you know, like I, like I say, there's like there's so much talent out there. They're doing some really cool, interesting stuff. I, you know, I, I feel lucky and blessed to have gotten into the industry at the time that I did, and like for people like Julie Reiner to call me a contemporary, I'm like, well, you've been doing it longer than me. In New York, you know, but she's like, yeah, but you're, you're part of us. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. But I'm like, cool. Now I can stop, <laughs> stop hustling at it and let the new kids like kind of take over. And, you know, and like I said, Green Army, like our staff there is just like doing such fun and cool stuff. And they're like great, great at hospitality and just very creative and just fun, you know, and that's, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's like being a place where like, you're, I always say a bar is only as good as the people who are in it. And, you know, I, I feel very blessed with Grand Army that like, you know, we've always had great staff and excellent customers. And that's another part of it too. It's like, people are just like, they, your guests are so well educated these days that like, you don't have to explain what a Negroni is to someone anymore or, you know, like, or what Capri is or what Vermouth is you know, they're probably going to tell you about it. And, uh, you know, and not in the the shitty, like 15 years ago, stump the bartender kind of way. It's like, oh yeah, well, I was just in 
I was in uh, Torino and like I picked up this vermouth because I never see, I've never seen it in the United States. I thought you might like to try it because you made me my first Negroni. I'm like, oh my God, yes, I would. That you thought about me in that way while I was thinking about you years ago and I wrote the ingredients and the recipe down on the back of my business card. And every time you come, you pull out my old business card from like, five different designs ago <laughs> it's like the, bo- that... the battle is won right like yeah, we don't exactly need, like the whole uh you know shirt suspenders and twirly mustaches you needed to come in with a sledgehammer because shit was dire and yeah you know even honestly if you'd gone to a lot of five-star hotel bars even in london before 1995 and you ordered a classic which they should be amazing at they were not amazing you know, they had no. shaken Manhattans yeah. and uh, didn't touch the bitters and use the maraschino juice. But now we don't need to use a sledgehammer anymore. It's like a scalpel. And we've kind of come full circle. We've never actually planned a podcast quite as uh, neatly as this. And it's analogous to hotels, isn't it? Luxury yeah. has evolved for a lot of people. Um, the bars and the restaurants have become even more important in uh, in hotels. So you don't need the umbrella in the closet to give the guests the experience they need any more than you need the, you know, the sleeve gaiters and the twirly mustache and the, no, we don't have vodka. You can serve vodka in a cocktail bar. Now you can stock cranberry juice because we all know, Hey, it's a good place. The customers are good people. The bartenders are good people. We're, we're in a better place than we've been since the mid 1850s. So we can chill and have fun like super bueno, like uh, a like grand army and, all that kind of thing. We don't need to man the battlements anymore. The war is over. That's exactly right. War is over if you want it. <laughs> like That's Lenin's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, look, yeah. we have to wrap it up. My wife just came home. Yours needs to get on the internet. This is the this is the joy of uh, of married life. <laughs> and actually, we're out here I, in the we're in West Marin. We're in the country, so we're working on a, a very we're like using Starlink. So uh, the bandwidth okay. is not. Yeah, <laughs> so it's the shared bandwidth. We share our lives, our love, and our bandwidth. <laughs> that's it. Well, well, that's real modern love. So, right. Damon, uh, for yes. all all the people who have been in suspended animation or living in a cave, how can they find you and all your various uh, activities online to like, sure. subscribe, and follow? Yeah, grandarmybar.com. Uh, the Instagram for Grand Army is also Grand Army Bar. Um, uh, if you look that up, it'll take you to Grand Army. Um, for me personally, it's Damon Bolte, D-A-M-O-N-B-O-E-L-T-E, B-O-E-L-T-E. Um, so funny spelling of that one. Um, and uh, yeah, mostly these days, I, you know, I, I, I kind of keep it more in the uh, the stories section of like Instagram. I don't really post too much. Um, when I do, it's usually like show posters for my band. Uh, or cocktails or like wedding photos. So I lost a lot of followers when I started posting about my wedding. <laughs> That's Sorry, it. Ladies. The, the ladies have given up. He's off the market, girls. Move on. <laughs> Get back on Bumble. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Phil, it's great to see you on online. Uh, I know we we miss each other in person, but I know that last couple times you've been out here, we've had some great times and uh Next time I'm out there, it won't be such a total shit show. And uh, well, it will. It always is. 
but uh, we'll get together. Let's let's meet at Keens. Maybe we'll run into Delta Graf and, and Phil Green. Yeah, we can't always count on seeing uh, Dale at Keynes, but the odds are better than uh, almost yeah. any other place in New York City. Maybe, maybe McSorley's. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave Bolte, <laughs> Renaissance man, thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers, brother.